Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Brett Ann Stanchu. Her last name spelled S-T-A-N-C-I-U. And I was sent a book to me from her publisher. Title of the book is Unstitched, A Journey to Understand Opioid Addiction and How People and Communities Can Heal. It's really a fascinating book. And it, I like the approach that she took in discussing this very pertinent, important topic, because she really talked about the human element and how it affects people. So I read through about half of it, and it's really very well written, and I'm really delighted to have her on the show. So Brett Stanchi, welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. Thank you so much. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and thank you for having me here today. It's a real awesome. pleasure. Uh, great. Well, uh, for people who may not have heard, this is your first book, correct? I actually wrote one book before this. I wrote a novel. It was published with a small publisher out of Brattleboro, Vermont. And the book is called Hidden View. It's a book set in rural Vermont. And it's about um, a family and farming and the challenges of farming as a small family. Yeah, but it was fiction. This is nonfiction. This is definitely nonfiction. So this one uh, just was published. And it really is a personal story, you being in Vermont. Can you talk about kind of what led you to Vermont and what got you kind of in contact or in connected to this epi opioid epidemic? Sure. That's a great question. And it, it, it's a bit of a complicated question as well, too. Um, I ended up moving to Vermont. I grew up in New Mexico and in New Hampshire, and I ended up going to Vermont when I was 18 years old. I went to a small school, a liberal arts college named Marlboro College, which unfortunately is now defunct. And as soon as I moved to Vermont, I loved Vermont in every way possible. I knew that I wanted to live in rural Vermont. I love I love the beauty of the landscape, and I loved living in little villages. It was something that inherently I knew was a place for me. And I ended up as a young woman, I got married, and I ended up moving to northern Vermont. And as my life went on, it, it got somewhat complicated. Um, I ended up having two children, and then I got divorced. And I, um, around that time, I published my first novel, as you mentioned, and then I became a librarian in a really small library. And for those of you who haven't been to these little tiny libraries in Vermont, it was just, it, and it still exists, it's a one room library. And it's set in a little tiny village that just has a few hundred people in it. And I was the only person who was working there. And I had just started this job. I was a single mother, I was raising two daughters and I really wanted to do a good job. And I began to realize just that first fall that I was working there, that someone was breaking into the, into the library. And the way I came to realize this was that I smelled cigarette smoke on Monday mornings. And then I started asking around. And this is very much the Vermont aspect of this because I began to understand the story only through local gossip and only through the story of villages around me. And I began to realize that a man was breaking in after hours and he wasn't really stealing anything. He stole a little tiny bit of money, but really he just wanted to be in the library. And the other thing that I learned about him was that it was rumored he was, um, he had a heroin habit and I became very, very afraid of this. So it's important to know for me as the teller of this story that I was afraid of him breaking in and I was afraid of his addiction as well too. 
So I tried very hard to keep him out. I called the state police. I mean, we went to all kinds of things, my little board of volunteer trustees. And eventually what happened is one of my trustees walked in on him. He ran out and then he ran back to his house and he committed suicide. And it was such, I'm gonna say upfront, this is a terrible, tragic story. And the book is not really about him. It's about what happened after he died because it was one of these rare moments in someone's life. It was a moment where I was just stunned and where I forced myself to just stop my life completely and say, what have I done? What have I done in this scenario? And from there, I began asking a bunch of questions. And so the first thing that for me was really important was I never reached out to this man. I never knew him. I just treated him as a rumor and I treated him just as a heroin addict. But I myself had struggled with an addiction as well. And I had a lot of stigma against him, although I shouldn't have. I knew what it was like to struggle with an addiction. So for me then, I felt compelled to write because I am a writer and that's how I understand the world. But I felt compelled to do two things, to really try to understand the opioid crisis, and it is a crisis now, but also to really understand my own story and how I was a piece of that story and what I brought to it. So it's those two stories that end up braided together in this book Unstitched. Right. And you really had a first person account in a very small town. I think you're outside of Montpellier, right? That's correct. Yep. And still, some people may think it's a big city issue, but uh, it still pervades. There's a lot of usage and using even in kind of the rural parts of the United States, correct? Oh, without a doubt. And this is one of the very unpretty and unattractive parts of it, certainly at least rural Vermont where I live, I would say that there's a significant addiction problem. And it's a part of Vermont that we don't really like to acknowledge. But for instance, if you work in the school system at all, I'm a school board member as well too, you really realize that the fingers of addiction go all through society. And once I started reaching out and talking to people, because I interviewed all kinds of people for this book, I began to realize in a painful way, like how deeply addiction touched people whether they themselves had an addiction, whether they had a family member, whether they were involved in it professionally as an EMT, as a medical worker. And this one man's death in this little town, I mean, this is a little town with not even a store in it. It just has a post office, right? This man's death touched profoundly me, every one of my trustees, the people in the school, the volunteer EMT members, people who had reached out to help him, who couldn't help him. I mean, the ripples of his death beyond his family went so far. It was just phenomenal to me. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the way it is too with uh, a lot of these situations. So it ripples right throughout the communities and populations. Can you talk about how you started? I mean, you it's really have a real thoughtful inquiry into this person after he passed away. Can you talk about what that kind of led you to and who you met up with after that event? Sure. That's a really good question. So because I was a librarian, um, the first thing I did was I really realized that I needed to get, I needed to become more knowledgeable myself. I had all, I had sort of a superficial understanding of opioid addiction. 
And the first thing I did is I reached out to people who were much more knowledgeable. So I interviewed people at the, the local health center and they gave me a, a fantastic overview of addiction. I interviewed um, the local police chief. I interviewed, for instance, the U.S. former attorney, U.S. attorney. But I also interviewed a lot of people who themselves were in recovery. So the, the interviews that I conducted were both people who were in recovery and had survived or who had a family member who died or who had a professional understanding of it. And one of the big ones that I could share with you is it's from the medical point of view, and it's about disease and addiction. And one of the first things that I that I really had to come up against is, is addiction a disease or is it just bad behavior? And this is a question that seems maybe superficial, but it's very, very important because if addiction is just seen as a disease, like something you could catch, then nobody ever needs to be responsible. And so there's a real backlash against that, right? Okay. On the other hand, um, if someone just has bad behavior and is just doing something naughty, then they're just seen as completely evil and vile. And I really began to realize that what was really important is to really look at addiction and look at disease in a much broader viewpoint, really dial back that lens and realize there's a real genetic component to addiction. Some people are just more likely to develop a dependence on drugs or alcohol, but there's also a whole array of your life as well too. What are the social causes? Do you come from a life of poverty and trauma? Are you introduced to drugs at a young age? Do you hang out with people who are involved with substances, right? And I, I, so I began to realize like it's, it's a complex mixture of both body, but also of volition. Yeah. And the bright part for that is if, if in fact it is also volition as well too, that means that you can get out of addiction. It's not just a death sentence. And as hard as it may be, you there is that possibility. People recover. This does happen. Right. You did talk to that one woman, a woman who, who told really her life story. Yeah. But you can see why some of these people, it's not just genetic. They had very difficult lives, difficult deaths and traumas, very specific. I remember her brother died and she had death in the family. So you could see why she would want to kind of numb the pain or get away from Right. You know, it's just some of the real world stuff and, and lose themselves in addiction. And But she came out the other side, right? I mean, she was able to be one of right. the fortunate ones. Right. I mean, that was, for me, this was also just a fascinating journey as well, too. So everyone I talked to was just incredibly generous in sharing what they had to know. There was just, people just did not hold back because they know addiction is incredibly difficult. And people were so generous in like really thinking through things that are incredibly complex. So if I could talk about like two different people who I interviewed. So there's Shauna Shepard, who you were referring to, who was born into a life that was just so difficult in so many ways. She had two brothers who died. I mean, she was born into a life that was just so painful to me. And yet she managed to get herself out. She slipped up at times. She had relapses, but she was honest. She was thoughtful about what she was doing. And now she's become a medical assistant herself. I mean, she's devoted her life in many ways to helping other people. And I found her just incredibly impressive and she'll never be famous. She'll never be on Oprah, but I found her just a harem in, in so many ways. And so she, she fits into that sort of social, um, 
background of, of poverty, of trauma, that is definitely, she's typical of that. Although she's atypical of, of how wonderfully she's dealt with things. And then another interview I did was towards the end of the book was from Sam uh, McDowell, who was from a very upper middle class home and just kind of didn't have any trauma in his family, right? Had some addiction, but had kind of just kind of a normal life, you know, wasn't a victim of racism, but he just kind of drifted into addiction and drifted into it. The people he hung out with used a lot of drugs and developed a terrible, terrible addiction. And that was one of the things that really struck me is if you get addicted to opioids, it's really, really hard to get off them. I mean, it is so difficult. And he even ended up dealing drugs. And I, at one point I'm like, Sam, how did an upper middle-class kid like you with every advantage at your hands end up running drugs down to New York City back to rural Vermont? And he's like, I just drifted into it without even really thinking about it. So that's that's a different way that people end up in addiction. So there's not there's never like just cookie cutters how people end up in their lives because we're very complex people. Right. And they have, I mean, they say like it's kissing Jesus and there's really, you get dope sick. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to, to keep people in that kind of uh, the rut of using opioids. What, what kind of, when you, you really had kind of a deeper understanding, like what other stories kind of affected you? Because there's still, there's people dying from opioids, even in upper class communities. I mean, yeah. Can you talk kind of about the effects that you saw of this drug? Yeah. So on a number of levels, it's an interesting question. So, of course, like everyone else, people are not individuals. We, we like to think of ourselves as, as individuals, but we're tied up in a whole the whole social landscape that we live in. So our actions inevitably affect other people. Yeah. Um, so for instance, if, if you develop an addiction in one way or another, you're going to profoundly affect your family. You're going to affect your friends. But there's all kinds of other layers that we see. Like for instance, I'll, I'll just give an example in rural Vermont, a rise in crime, right? So opioids, just by the nature of them, they're both legal and illegal. At a certain point, often for people, those lines are, are crossed in many ways, right? you end up with an addiction, you end up inevitably lying, you end up breaking the rules, spending things. And what goes along with that is a real rise in crime. And a rise in crime tends to destroy social structure in one way or another. Um, so it wasn't that long ago in rural Vermont, people really never locked their doors, right? But now there's a rise in petty theft. There's a rise- That happened to you, crime. right? You It happened to you specifically. It happened to me specifically. Yes. Yeah, so uh, my house was robbed several times. In fact, tires were stolen. It was something that made me really angry. There was nothing that really could be done about that. But that tends to rip your understanding. When you're robbed, it's a terrible feeling. It rips your trust in the society that you're in, without a doubt. Yeah. That's right. So there's cr right. crime, yeah. family breakup, uh, all kinds of family problems are associated with opioid use, right? Yes, all kinds of family problems. Then there's all kinds of problems in the school system as well, too, where it tends to wreak havoc. The school system inevitably, and I don't really talk about this in my book to a great extent, but inevitably the school system gets becomes sort of uh, 
the social worker catch-all because one way or another, the school system has to deal with kids in need. Yeah. Right. So there's neglect, parental neglect of the kids who are, you know, offspring. Uh, the consequences are very profound. Just, oh, just for one opioid user. Just uh, So I think the important thing to really, what I write about in my book a lot is I'm really trying to understand stigma and the stigma that we bring to addiction, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And that is, that's a complicated thing. And in the end about addiction, I think it's important to understand that when you're in the throes of an addiction, it's almost as though there's a veil around you where you lose all sense of rationality. You lose all sense of compassion. Inevitably, you end up in service to that addiction. And in this book, I share my own struggles with addiction and with alcohol and how I went down that path as well. And the reason, initially, I was very, very reluctant to write about my own struggles because that's very painful. It's a source of enormous shame for me. But I really wanted to put that in the book because I didn't want my book to be a finger pointing sort of book and say, if you're using opioids or if you have an addiction, you're a bad person. I wanted to share my struggle because at this point I'm clean and I intend to remain clean until I die. But I know that no one ever intends to develop an addiction. And I know that everyone who's in the throes of an addiction in one way or another wants to get out. The question is, how do we help people get out? And that was right. one of the questions that I ask in the book and pose. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of, you have to, I, mean, you, I think you, one of the people who was in the book, you state, she didn't want to get out. It, it took a certain point to come to that other side. Where, oh my God. I'll yeah. just say up front, when you're in that addiction is, it's described as a beast it should really be described as just the most awful, terrible beast imaginable. And I know people who have tried, I mean, one of the people I wrote about, she, he, he tried 20 times, you know, 20 different rehabs to get out, right? I wrote about a family whose daughter died. They sent her to over 20 rehabs at enormous cost to them. She didn't get out. It's very, very difficult to get out of addiction. And part of it is there's a real uh, chemical component, a real body component, right? So when you talk about people getting dope sick, being unable to just physically withdraw, that's a real thing. There's a real physical component. The other thing is if you're gonna, if you've had an addiction for a while and you're in, attempting to become sober, you have to completely rewrite your life, like totally rewrite your life because your former life, everything triggers you to addiction. You're in that addiction. And so when I became, when I became sober, I had to change so many parts of my life. I left my marriage. I got a new job. There were stores that I never went to. I sold my house, moved to another place. And this happens routinely for people because you're starting a new life. It is that difficult. But on the other hand, you're starting a life that's like, it's brand new. It's a life that can be a creative and fulfilling life where you're no longer in bondage to an addiction. But we should never underestimate the complexity of that and, and really have sympathy for people who are struggling. It really is a form of bondage, right? I mean, they're really controlled. It's a stronghold. You can't get out of people want to leave. But it's also a lifestyle. Like you said, it's probably the same with any addiction. That is that they become then their own friends of circles, their own routines. 
the using routine and yeah. you just have to. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a line, I forget what the movie is. Uh, and maybe you would know there's a line in it that says, seemed like a good idea at the time, right? So of course, addiction is really a demon that way. It, it, it is, um, it's euphoria when you first begin. It's very seductive, right? And for many, many people use drugs or alcohol in ways that are not, that did not develop full-blown addictions, right? So many people drink a glass of wine or two glasses of wine, and for them, it's a lovely and wonderful experience, right? You know, and that may be part of a regular normal life for many, many people, right? But for people who go down the path of addiction, there's that initial euphoria, that initial seduction, where it seems like this is the most wonderful thing in the world, particularly if your life is painful and everybody's life goes through painful periods. There's no question about that. And so it happens often very slowly, right? Where, and for me, it happened very slowly, where, you know, I started out as just a regular person, alcohol was just part of our life. And then, but it slowly progressed. It became more and more and more. And there's never often like a clear cut line where all of a sudden alcohol or drugs are the most important thing to you rather than things you once loved very deeply in your life. And I, I think that's one of the hardest and trickiest things for people. Yeah, there is a, there is a real component of pain associated with life in general, but also with getting into drugs and getting out. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And I would agree with it from my own experience. Yeah. So when I hit the more challenging parts of my life, I leaned on alcohol because to me, it seemed like it wasn't even a conscious decision. It was just something that I felt I needed at that time. It was a way of sort of smoothing off the edges of my life, right? I certainly never set out to say, hey, I'm going to become an alcoholic and a mother. It just doesn't work that way, right? I set out to become a mother, right? And so it, this is part of the demon of addiction where you're seduced this way, then you're wrapped in this sort of fog. And so the tipping point for people, you know, it's brought up as sort of rock bottom. Well, what is rock bottom, right? Where do you hit that point where all of a sudden it's like, hey, am I really going to make a change in my life or not, right? And for every person, it's different, right? And some people may need that over and over and over again. I write about one man where he realized he was going to go to jail. For him, it was that tipping point. I met another woman and she's like, I was just lucky enough to slowly get better. Yeah. So it's it's different for everybody. What's that end point? I just had somebody close to my family who was in that routine all the way up and died of an overdose in his 50s. But he had been through yeah. the entire process from yeah. his teens to that time in and out of rehab, working for rehabs, yeah. falling off the wagon. Yeah. And it consumed his whole life. And it's very, it's kind of a sad, uh, the way he ended was very sad. So it wasn't yeah. an opioid addiction, but it was definitely a drug addiction. But he didn't get that one point where like, I am completely done. I'm never going to go back to this again. And some people make it and some don't. Yeah, I, I've heard of stories of people coming out of treatment centers, working on getting their next fix. So they went, because I live by, I live by Malibu where there's very expensive treatment yeah. centers. Yeah. The stories are unbelievable. Like you're leaving something for $10,000 a week and you're going to go use in downtown LA. So it's yeah. very powerful. This uh, opioid draw is really powerful. And and so that was one of, this was also a very, it's 
first of all, I'm sorry for the loss of your family. I'm sorry for anyone who was stuck in this Thank you. by any means. And, and it's ubiquitous. I'm, but that doesn't mean that for everyone who goes through it or who has a family member go through it, it doesn't diminish that pain in any way at all. Yeah. I think it's really important to note when I first started writing, I was like, I'm just going to write about opioids. But I really realized the problem is really addiction. And whether it's alcohol addiction or opioid addiction, these all work differently. Heroin is a, a much different addiction maybe than an alcohol addiction, but the problem really is addiction. And we should really ha have a lot of sympathy all the way around for that. And there's, there's no end of terrible toxic substances here. Yeah. Right. But I think the opioid is something somewhat novel because yeah. I don't know if it was prevalent. Maybe there were different variants back in the, the day when they called it heroin and sold it over the counter, yeah. maybe at the turn of the century. But the yeah. prevalence of and availability of opioids in the last 30 years is something much different, especially for when I was younger. I'm 53. Yeah. When I was teen, that was very unusual to hear of or come across opioids but today it's it's really ever present all over the country yeah same here i would reiterate that i'm ex actually exactly the same age i mean when i was a kid like you know marijuana was the big issue right and you know kids you know stealing booze from their parents liquor cabinets right and that's been extremely well documented the rise of um the opioid crisis who's behind it how it was pushed who's responsible for that, who's never going to pay the penalty for that. I mean, that that's phenomenally well-documented. Just the proliferation of pills in our society has done just, it's just wrecked havoc across our country. Yeah. I think there's very, there's very little debate that that is, it's just been a profound social situation. Yeah. Right. Really profound, very deep. And I think that the, uh... The tone and your approach in your book is very, I really love the way you approach the problem as a human problem. You're looking at people and definitely trying to figure out, because it's really some, this problem, it's a matter of the human condition. It's yeah. almost like a very profound spiritual or, or philosophical thing that leads people to, in, in, in these difficult things that potentially lethal consequences. Um, so... Yeah. It's almost like a spiritual event you know, when I was looking at it. Like, it's very, very profound. What did you find when you're looking in that, that could get to the other side? Like, you talk about the pain, the pain of drug use. How do people heal? How can they ever come out of this? It, it's so interesting to hear you say that because the more, I, the more I wrote this book and the deeper I went into trying to understand my own life with addiction and the more I heard about other people's stories, the heart of the, I'm glad to hear you say there's a spiritual component because there is. It's not at all like it's not a religious book by any means. But what I realized is in many ways, um, addiction is really about human suffering. Um, and that's what I found most in, just fascinating about the stories that I in, encountered in this book is in one way or another, people were really forced to look not so much outside themselves, but in themselves. Why am I suffering? What really is the nature of human suffering? And that's incredibly complex, right? It's something that we really often don't really want to look at, but it goes through every single bit of addiction. It, it's just, addiction is just saturated in suffering. But the flip side of that is, is 
the other side of suffering is there's a light out of suffering. It's not addiction can seem as though it's just blackness, as though it's just a void that you will never, ever get out of. But people do get out of it. And you hear people talk about, as I've experienced myself, the light that takes you out. And I don't mean necessarily, and it may be for some people where they have a religious experience. But what I mean is when you start to move out of addiction, you do realize that that addiction can, can fade. And what I began to understand as I wrote the book is the way out for people often is there's someone on the other side for them. There's someone, one particular reason at least, why someone chooses finally to maintain sobriety. And for me, it was my daughters. If I didn't have my daughters, there would be no reason for me to have gotten sober. And it doesn't have to be anything big. It doesn't have to be anything earth shaking, but it has to be someone on the other side or something on the other side that pulls you out of it. I think that that's the most powerful part. Um, I, I think rehab, I think medication assisted treatment, I think support all the way around is enormously important. And I wanna reiterate that if anybody is suffering from an addiction, please go get help and please don't be ashamed to ask for help. Take as much help as you can get because it will be given to you. But also really look for what is worth living in my life and realize life is not all gloom and doom. There's joy as well too. What I found also, like I've known people who have used heavy drugs and people think that they're partiers or happy. They're in suffering. I've seen a lot of people, they're in a lot of, even, so like the concept of a drug user is somebody who's trying to just party it up. And in, in my experience, a lot of times that's false. They are trying to cover up very profound human suffering, personal suffering. I found that. that that's I really would, would completely agree with that. And, and I would also say again, remember, there are also just stages that people descend into addiction as well, too. So like you can party hardy in your 20s, you know, and not then maybe just move on. A lot of people do that and then just move on and don't develop an addiction. Right. But at some point that slips into something else where all of a sudden, like, for instance, for me, at the end of my period, when I was drinking the hardest, I didn't dream anymore. The only thing that I dreamed about was alcohol. Everything else had been stripped from my life. And now I live a very, very different life. And there are kind of, so there are solutions like you can get, you mentioned a drug that minimizes the effects of opioids. Yes. Um, so there's treatments that people can definitely go through, right? Oh, yes. And many of these, many of these treatments work very, very well for people. I mean, again, there's a, a whole variety of, um, of a rehabilitation process or a recovery process. And people are, some things work for some people, some things work for other people. 12 step is great for some people, not for other people. Yeah. But the big thing is, the big thing about medication assisted treatment where you're maybe on Suboxone is it gives your body time to heal, right? Because there's a physical injury to your body, but you also need time emotionally and spiritually to begin to mend your life as well too. We're, we're not either just body or spirit, we're both. Do you think that maybe the loss of kind of like a church life or kind of cohesive communities or families being close to each other has an influence on the predominance or, or the rise of opioid abuse? 
Yes, I do. Yeah, I feel that very, very, very strongly. So I can see that, for instance, in my little Vermont village that I live in. The church used to be, uh, you know, the prime, one of the prime sources of um, social life, right? As was the schools. Schools had a lot of kids, the Grange. There were lots of women's groups, right? All of that sort of social life has broken down. And the pandemic has really made us realize we need that. And I just wanted to note here, I see there's a comment from Scotty that he says Suboxone and methadone can help, but there's much more to it than that. He's totally right. These are just like little steps here. And I really appreciate that comment. Yeah. Recovery is a very, very complex process. But it's like there. this rise of the abuse has taken place with social changes. I think Yes. Also, people being inside, computer yes. usage. Yes. So they don't have to go out. The And the decline of these men's and women's clubs of socializing in groups or things like that, a lot of that's done online. And I think maybe that has something to do with it as well. Because, I, yeah, it, I, it, I think you're very right. It, our, our life is so fragmented now, right? And we even encourage our young people to sort of live in these fragmented moments through their iPhones, right? Through social media, right? But we really need each other more than anything else. And we live in a time where there's these huge events happening around us. There's climate change. We may even, in fact, be heading to another world war, right? So it seems as though our individual actions don't matter. But just these little bits of connection, if we strengthen just these little circles around us, we're going to make much more resilient communities. It's really, it's really important to do that. You see, you people don't feel alienated. They're not lonely. There's a huge loneliness yeah. epidemic too after uh, COVID. Yes, just a lot of things that in this, a different culture, a pre kind of internet electronics culture, uh, people used to do things. Oh, I'm going to go out on Friday night to the dance. I'm going. Yeah. You know, it just yeah. didn't doesn't seem to. Uh, I think that's part of the problem. It's kind of like a cultural, spiritual shift. I don't think that was healthy. That happened in in American society. And I think I, that there's places to fill those gaps. Would you agree with that? I, I would completely agree with that. And I, I think we could look at addiction maybe in a more, much more realistic way as rather than pointing fingers at people who are suffering from addiction at seeing it more as like a widespread social illness where we live in a, a society that that is that is ailing in many ways that we really need to strengthen our world that we live in and we'll be a happier group of people for doing that. I believe that's possible. And I believe we're at a turning point right now. We're pulling ourselves out of a pandemic and we have a real hunger to be together. Yeah. And if I think that if you had that kind of higher happiness quotient, the yeah. temptation or the desire for something else to fill that space, wouldn't be as, as as predominant, I would say, because people I, would be doing other things that make them happy instead of using or something like that. I, I would I would concur with that. I believe addiction fills a great void in our society and it, in our individual lives. And if if we don't have those voids, if we don't have those emptinesses, we'll do other things that are happier and healthier for us. Yeah, that's a good. It's, it's a really well-written book. I've really enjoyed reading this. You have a talent, and I think you put across in the book this real kind of human element, non-judgmental, really trying to sift through and get to really the core of this personal 
experience of this of this terrible plague or scourge of opioids. Yeah. So I condemn you. I I commend you for writing the book. Really excellent. Where is there anything you'd like to add or anything that I missed? Any anything that uh, you'd like to final uh, end up with? You know, I, I, I really appreciate this conversation and um, I really appreciate the chance to talk about my book and to talk about these things that matter so much to me and I believe matter to, to many other people too. And I guess more than anything else, I would just reiterate that there there is hope that we shouldn't, we shouldn't blind our, addiction is dark and it's really discouraging at times, but we can heal and we can move forward and we should never, ever let that go. And we should just try to be kind to each other first. And let's start there. Yeah, yeah that's a good start. Um, where's the best place, Brett, for people to get unstitched? Um, I always recommend independent bookstores because I love independent bookstores. If it's not there, ask them if they will have it there. And it, it's definitely on Amazon as well, too. And anyone can also find me on, I, I write a blog as well, too. Anyone can also write to me as well, too. I'm happy to hear from people in my What's blog. What's the name of your blog? It's Stony Soil Vermont, spelled out, dot com. Stony Soil. I'll put that in the show notes. So. Right. Um, um, and if people want to reach out to me, I, I'm always happy to hear stories of people. And they can they can reach out to you through the blog, correct? Yep. Yep. I'll find you. my contact info on there. And there is an audio book of this story, right? On stage. Yeah, there's an audio book and a Kindle version. All of that is on Amazon, right under my name and under Unstitched. And it's Stanchu, last name spelled S-T-A-N-C-I-U. Title of the book is Unstitched, My Journey to Understand Opioid Addiction and How People and Communities Can Heal. Thank you so much for your time, Bert. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate All right, it. All right, take care. Stay there.